Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about for me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Welcome to the Chris Hedges Report. Today in part two of A Long Road Home, we look at the numerous hurdles faced by prisoners released into society, the toll on their families, the importance of educational programs in restoring self-esteem and setting goals, and the difficult process of even being granted parole. We begin by speaking with Russ Owen, who spent 32 years in prison the day he was released from East Jersey State Prison, as well as his mother, May Owen, along with four other former prisoners, Boris Franklin, who spent 11 years in prison, Ron Pierce, who spent 30 years in prison, Robert Luma, whose nickname is Kabir, who spent 16 years in prison, and Thomas Dollard, who spent 30 years in prison. All were my students in the college degree program offered to prisoners in the New Jersey State Prison System by Rutgers University. Collectively, they spent 119 years in prison. Young lady. Hey. <laughs> I'm sorry, my pants don't fit. <laughs> I gotta keep pulling them up. What were you thinking when you walked out? Um, a little bit of anxiety uh, because you're just not used to the love. You know, you're not used to, you know, just seeing so many people. You know, uh, they're there waiting for you. You know, and this is overwhelming. It's very humbling. You know, to think that, that, you know, from where I came from, from all I've done, you know, that there's something redeemable about me. You know, so um, I'm cherishing this moment, and, uh, and I just can't wait to make the people proud. Well, but you made us all proud inside, Russ. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's true. But I'm ready to do better, if I can. How was it? seeing your parents for the first time outside a visiting room or not on a phone? It was amazing. You know, uh, I'm grateful, you know, because I know a lot of people's family didn't make it. You know, and that has been my one prayer throughout these 32 years. Give me an opportunity to give back to my parents. You know, and the reason why is because for me growing up, I got it wrong. You know, the way I process things uh, as a child and as a teenager, you know, I wasn't fair to my parents. You know, their intentions were good towards me, you know, but I was rebellious. You know, so for me, this moment has meant everything. Okay, brother, love you, man. The trauma of mass incarceration affects not only those who are incarcerated, but their families. I sat down with Russ's mother. So for 32 years, you've stood by your son while he's been incarcerated. Explain what's that like for a mother and for a family to have someone incarcerated. Um, for us, okay, well, first of all, we had prayed about it. And I just felt like God was saying to me, I'm taking care of him. And so, I had to hold on to that. 
And so, you know, we did the appeals and everything like that. And so our prayer was that uh, at Christmas time, he'll be home. And each year, we just believed at Chris by Christmas time, he'll be home. You know, even this past Christmas. <laughs> and we were able to hold on to that, believing that one day he would be home for the next Christmas. And so um, we just walked by faith, you know, each year, one year at a time, you know, and no matter what came up, by the grace of God, he's going to be home. Let's talk about what it's like, the phone calls, the visits, the sending money through the commissary. For people that don't know what a family goes through, tell us. Um, Russell called us pretty much every day. And they're not long conversations, but it's to let us know that he's doing all right. But also he get to hear our voice and know that we're okay. And, you know, sending him money because um, he does have a little job there, but for a lot of them, you know, there's no job, no type of income for them, so they end up with nothing. So we tried to send him a little bit of money, but it's not that he asked us to do it. You know, what he asked for is uh, books, his school books. That's where we usually uh, provide money for him. Um, but for us, it's those, you know, the phone calls to keep that connection going. Well, one of the things that I was determined to do that once this happened was to build a relationship. Because, you know, I didn't, I didn't know my parents, you know, growing up. You know, so I made every effort to get to know them. You know, so I learned things about them. So it wasn't just that they were my parents, they became my friends. And then, you know, I, I shared my vision with them of, of who I wanted to be. Even though I was in prison, I had a vision of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And I shared it with them and they became my partners. And what was that vision? Uh, well, the first thing was for me to never commit an act of violence again. You know, and I didn't know how that, that was going to play out in prison. You know, but by the grace of God it did and I was committed to it. Um, definitely I was committed to rededicating my life to the Lord. You know, and I wanted to be the person that I was meant to be. And again, I didn't know how all that was going to play out inside the prison walls. But I worked hard effortlessly and my parents were my partners the whole time supporting me you know you know in that environment there's not too much support but it was my parents that was the one supporting me when I felt like I couldn't do it they said I could do it and a lot of that was through education 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 you know they you know as I was as I was doing my education um, I was giving them updates they were involved, so every time I called home, that was the topic of discussion. How's your schoolwork going? You know, uh, where you at right now? This and that. Um, made sure that all the report cards got sent to them. You know what I mean? So I wanted to do what I could to, to let them know that I was working hard and to uplift their spirits too. How did prison change Russ? Uh, he grew up. He became uh, a very organized person. He became. Um, a person that set goals for himself. 
So, you know, it's like uh, the uh, six months, a year, five years, and like that. So there's certain things that he wants to accomplish. And um, he wants to be able to make sure that his grandkids do not experience a lot of the things that he's experienced. Because uh, a lot of times in families, if one member, if the father goes to jail, then it's the son and the grandson and like that. And that's something he wants to um, do his best to avoid. And so, but the main thing is that he became a person that is well organized with goals set for his life. And for those people who have not, I mean, you all got college degrees. Uh, uh, you finished yours, Russ, in prison. You both finished yours at Rutgers when you got out. But if you, if you don't have that level of education, if you don't understand how the system works, uh, if you're not able to articulate even your own emotions, uh, anecdotally, it's almost impossible to get through parole, isn't it? I, well, I always, I said it, you know, through learning the process, once you panic, if a person panics, it's over. Oh, yeah. Once you panic, they got you. And, you know, another thing, a lot of guys don't have the language. And that goes along with what we talked about with the trauma, the repressing everything, not thinking about it. You know, so a lot of times, and then when you hear, when, when they read out what you've done, it's a shock to you. Yes. You know, it's like, well, I did that? Or I was a part of that? And so because the moment is so huge, that parole moment is so huge and it's so intimidating, you know, a lot of people can't talk, they can't find the language to express. Yeah. A guy can really be sorry and a guy can really be remorseful. I met a lot of guys like that, but they want you to be able to express it and to explain it. It's like public speaking. Yeah. You can completely go blank and everything is riding on that moment. See, like, if you go to a job interview, there's a lot at stake for the job, but now you're talking about individuals whose lives are at stake. And there's so much riding on that moment, it's easy to lose the words. And when you come out of there, it may all come flooding back, but your 15 minutes is up. And that's what they're judging you on. So Russ, who's most challenged when they go before the parole board? Guys with the least education, uh, there's guys that are illiterate, you know, uh, there's guys that have been going to school for 10, 15, 20 years that are still trying to get their GED. And uh, just guys that are, are mentally challenged. You know, so when these guys go before the parole board, it's obvious that they can't prepare adequately. It's obvious that in the moment, they can't express themselves. You know, uh, whether it's, you want to call it like a, a low emotional intelligence or whatever, but they don't have the tools necessary to articulate uh, remorse or to articulate, you know, I know a guy that he went up, they went up and gave him a hit because he couldn't articulate his plan for the future. Not many people can articulate a plan for the future and then to be able to articulate it and then for them to approve it. You know, a lot of guys, you know, just, you know, a lot of stuff is spontaneous. You know, you get out and they want to know where you're going to work. You know, after being in jail, you know, uh, 20, 30 years, you don't know anybody. You know, most of the time your family's gone. You know, and all you have to socialize you is just the, the prison. So nothing prepares you. So guys that with the least education 
and guys that are mentally challenged, you know, or, or deficient, whatever, however you want to call it, you know, those guys, they, it, it doesn't really bode well for them. So talk a little bit about your vision of what you thought life would be like uh, when you got out and then how that vision confronted reality. Well, when I first got out, I thought that uh, jobs would be lined up for me, school would be lined up for me, and uh, I thought that I would be able to at least help take care of my family. And the reality was, was that work was not set up for me. School was not set up for me. Uh, and I have a job that I work three days a week, but that barely helps to take care of. I just contribute to helping to take care of my family instead of being able to take care of my family on my own. When you apply for a job, uh, do you, on the form, have they removed the box or do you have to write that you were incarcerated? Yeah, they ask you about your incarceration, your crime and all that. And the only jobs that basically would accept you was labor intense jobs. Because they don't care who they bring in there. Like, you just a body with some hands and some feet. I know you pretty well. I mean, and I know you wanted to come out, you wanted to contribute, all that was so important to you. What has been the hardest thing for you to deal with, given what you wanted to do and what, you're, what you can do? I mean, this is the bread and butter where all you the will of America is your finances. And to see how, how pigeonholed we are, and we're at like a certain level, like, we're like $12 hour people, and $12 an hour nowadays is nothing. You might as well make it seven back in the day somewhere, like. And that's one of the biggest things because I'm not able to breach a certain level to get on board, as I call it. You know what I mean? Get an apartment, a car, and all that without trying to cut corners and maybe risking my freedom to get things that simple like a car and an apartment. And when you talk to other uh, people who have gotten out, would you say that your experience is typical? Absolutely. From one, in one form or another, everybody's dealing with some form of hardship. They just push you out and expect you to succeed with no real help. Even when your parole officer, the parole, they don't, it's no real help, it's no resources there to put you on a road. Like, you will have to actually, like, you know what I mean, be a woman or a parent with kids or something like that in order to get these benefits. It's difficult, very, very, very difficult. And really, there's no organization to support ex-offenders. And that's kind of like where we get put in the hole. Like, like, if you don't have your own social connections and things of that nature, then you're going to be done for. And a lot of guys who do a lot of time, as of myself and more, they don't have those connections because they've been gone for so long. I know I'm on parole. That's not free. You know, I'm still what I look at as being a slave because I can't go anywhere I want. I have to ask permission. You know, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 51 years old, but I feel like I'm somebody's child. You know, my parole officer is at least 20 years younger than me, you know, and when I'm going to him, I have to ask him, I have to text him and tell him I want to go here or I can't even spend the night anywhere. I don't know. I just I think I just have that internal will. Like sometimes I don't have to coach him. I'm not the type of person I have to get up and coach myself because I was dealing with it in there. I had to I had to push myself through 16 years, even sometimes not verbally. So it's just I, I just I'm used to being downtrodden, which is a bad thing to say. I'm just used to that position. I'm just tired of that position. So I don't need, I'm not the type of person that need a pep talk. I don't need to go to no pep rally. Even if I'm at my worst day, I'm gonna get up and try to go do something. Or sometimes I'm depressed. I don't wanna do nothing at all. 
But at the end of the day, I know if I go to sleep and wake up, it's another day I can feel different when I get up. The yearning by most who are released to re-enter society, to find a place and be productive, is often cruelly thwarted by the hard reality they face, unhoused, unemployed, and finally desperate and depressed. The temptation of drugs and alcohol to blunt the pain and the allure of making money in the illegal economy, which is what sent many to prison in the first place, becomes for some irresistible, as Kabir explained. We always gotta think, damn, should I go sell drugs? Should I go rob somebody? Even though we know at the end of the day that's a bad choice, but sometimes you only live right now when your situation is dire. When you got people that's depending on you or even when you're depending on yourself. Do I even belong out here? Like, did, they, did prison ruin me enough to like, not even be a productive citizen? And you know where your mind goes, sometimes your body goes. Poverty, not uh, uh, poverty, no jobs. Uh, 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 the children, I see the children dirty and hungry. No one is going to watch their, their, their child starve to death. So then you say, go, get it, go out and get a job. When you're coming from where I come from, it's easy for you to say that, but hard for us to do. If you have a record, it's 10 times harder for you to do. This whole, when they say that the system is broken, it's absolutely not broken. It's, it's doing what it was designed to do. Is there anything about prison, I know it may sound like a stupid question, but is there anything about prison you miss? I mean, absolutely, it, it, it was kind of more stable, so I can read more, I can work out. My meals was there, you know your meals is coming, even though a lot of them joints is just nasty as hell. But I worked in, I worked in the ODR, it was just the office of dining room, I was making my own meals, sprucing them up. It was just, to me, for, for me in my situation, it was more stable at certain points, and I had more peace of mind. Out here, it's just, is designed to keep us in a position where we have to go back. Because then, as those numbers, now we, we, we're just a number, which we all know, and then it weakens, especially when the men are gone, it weakens the community. Why? Because now you only had the women and the children. So now it's easy to attack the community when there's no men. And I, don't, and, and I don't think people understand and see that. It's not just a, a father being taken from his home, it's him being taken from the whole community. When I was growing up, you had fathers and the mothers there which made the community flourish. I don't see that, in, I, I've I haven't seen that even before I came and went to prison 30 years ago. That started to be done and I see it now. It's at its worst. You say, why are kids in gangs and all these things? Where's their fathers? The biggest thing that people don't understand about people in prison is that, is that we hurt. We carry the pain of abandoning our posts as fathers, brothers. Um, we carry the pain of not being there when, when um, our mothers pass or something, or, or not being able to be a shoulder. We carry the pain of the individuals who are not getting out. We carry more pain than probably the average person because of having this different state of awareness coming face to face with a different, with, with reality in a different way. I think we shoulder more pain than, than, um, than the average citizen. I would just add to that, we are not, and, and, and those people that are currently incarcerated 
are not our crime. We are people that have made mistakes and are, are paying for that mistake, not with money, not, not with, but with our, the essence of our life. You know, you have taken away our, our life from, from our families, from our communities. And, and, and that goes to, to we developed a community inside and, and, and that community inside is, is helping those coming, that, that have come home from inside are helping those from our community to help them reacclimate and, and not have to go through the struggles and, and through the problems that, that coming home exists. The, le- the, the more you, you make it punitive rather than, than restorative, right? the less likely that you're going you're gonna to get somebody who, who's a full person coming out, the less likely that, that you're going to uh, be able to see this person human if all you see is the crime. For me, I was already committed. You know, the way I am now is, is I, I, I commit. When I made the commitment to no violence and things like that, I understood that with that, I had to change my heart. You know, so I knew to be vulnerable and transparent. My years in prison, I was very fortunate that, you know, um, like I'd never really been on the dap, dap, dap. I was always, I'm, I'm hugging you, I don't care. You know, and that's just how I came through the prison. You know, because I made a commitment. It was a choice yeah. to do no violence. Not that I couldn't, you know, but because of what I've done, I made the decision that I wasn't gonna live that type of life because I discovered, uh, Boris and Ron, that the same anger that I used to wake up with when I was growing up as a teenager with the same anger that was required to wake up in prison. And I couldn't continue to live my life like that. You know, because on the street I had to wake up and it was so exhausting that I had to say, okay, I had to be ready for what the day brought me. You know what I mean? Okay, who's gonna disrespect me? Who's gonna be racist towards me? Uh, who's gonna try to bully me or whatever? So I had to go throughout my day and, and whoever did anything, I had to react first. And then when I got to prison, I said, oh, this, this requires the same thing. I said, I can't do that. So I had to change me. So I grew up, you know what I mean? So I grew up in prison with love in my heart, um, forgiveness, and things, the things that I had to learn. So, so now, you know, coming home, that's, that's easy for me. That's not awkward for me because I'm, just, I'm doing the same thing that I was doing in prison. I see somebody that's, that's down and out, I'll talk to them. Or I see somebody that, that needs a hug that don't, I'll hug you. It, it doesn't matter to me, so I'm not, you know, socially awkward like that, but that's just because I made the the commitments and my values surround my commitment. One thing I learned from uh, my religion is that if you take a life, it's as if you killed the whole of humanity. If you save a life, it's as if you saved the whole of humanity. So every day to me it is that my, my scale is unbalanced. I took a life, so every day has to be about saving a life so that on the day of judgment when I go before the person whom I've wronged and go before my Lord, I'll have the other part to say that, okay, yes, he did that, that was, but that's not who he is. He did this to save me. So every day I'm working to make my, not just myself, but those around me better. Russ in his first few hours of freedom is hopeful. 
surrounded by family and friends armed with a college degree. But he is aware, like all who are released, that mass incarceration in many ways does not end when you walk out the doors of the prison. Most end up back inside. For now, however, he is rejoicing in simply being able to breathe outside the prison walls. Beautiful. Free air. You know, uh, there's no anxiety in the air. There's no chaos in the air. You know, in the air, I smell a new beginning. You know, and uh, I'm excited. And I'm happy to, just to see what I can contribute. Kabir is still struggling to find a job, apartment, and what he calls normal. Thomas Dollard is finishing his BA degree at Rutgers University and is expected to graduate this spring. He is looking for full-time employment. Ron Pierce, who graduated summa cum laude from Rutgers University, works as a Democracy and Justice Fellow at the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice he is also enrolled in the master's degree program in criminal justice at Rutgers University. Boris Franklin, who graduated from Rutgers University, works as a community organizer with New Jersey Together in Jersey City. Russ Owen, who graduated summa cum laude from Rutgers University and earned a doctorate in pastoral care in prison, began work recently as a community organizer with New Jersey Together. He says that although he is free, he struggles to cope with the deep loneliness that defined his life in prison. The directors of photography for A Long Road Home were Chris Arnone and Michael Johnson. The film was produced by Rebecca Miles and Chris Arnone. It was edited by Chris Arnone, Michael Johnson, and Sean McMillan. Graphic design was by Sean McMillan. I also want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.